0: Good morning. Well, I asked Debbie Johnson to put in the bulletin with the title, Bring a Picnic Lunch. Because I'm not just speaking on those two paragraphs. That's the bookends to what I'm speaking on. It's a large passage. And uh, I asked Gary, how long do I have? He says, well, Tom goes to about noon or five after. And I said, I'm here to set a record. So in uh, McKinney right now during the summer, we, uh, we have a youth summer program that differs from the year, during the school year. And we meet on Sunday nights, not every Sunday, but usually every other Sunday. And many of the summers I get to participate or I do the whole thing. Th- this summer we're studying the Gospels afresh, all four of them. And I get two weeks on two of them and then Two other fellows are going to take the other two. And then we had an introductory section. And uh, <clears throat> it's uh, it's wonderful because most of us have grown up with a very epistolatory uh, uh, mentality. And it's J.R. Packer who first urged me to think about the Gospels afresh. Jesus spoke first, and then uh, from him came the Apostles. But almost all of our definitions, our theological definitions, they always come from the epistles, not from the Gospels. And so what we tend to do is we try to read Paul back into the Gospels, and quite frankly, it doesn't work. But since we're so unaccustomed to the Gospels, it's hard for us to, well, to understand. Too many sections don't fit the way we've theologically stated things. For example, we... Talk about being secure in Christ, the doctrine of security. Once saved, always saved. And then repeatedly, you see in the Gospels, sections that would make you think, well, is that really true? And, uh, of course, it is true. But we don't think the way Jesus thought. We think the way Paul thought, the way Paul articulated things. So this summer, we're going through the Gospels, and we we spent our first lesson. And, And what I do during the summer is... I want to know who's present. So I make them go around the room, and I ask them to give their name and their age. And then I have a question for them to answer. And the first week's question was, name one commandment of Jesus from the book of Matthew. They've got to have their Bibles under their chairs. And I don't know, we had maybe 20 kids there, and I think we got up on the board four commandments. But Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Well, one could spend a long time on that passage, but clearly, uh, to be a disciple, one has to be a learner. And a learner is someone who's come to know uh, not simply the Ten Commandments, but the commandments of Jesus, and probably most of us can't list very many at all. And those commandments, naturally, would include not simply the commandments from the Gospels, but since Jesus sent out his apostles, and they're inspired by the Spirit, then they would include all of the commandments of the New Testament. And a a disciple really is a learner. It's somebody who who follows Jesus, as we're going to see today, but they follow Jesus for the purpose of learning and being just like Jesus. So I was rather disappointed. Our, Our kids can't give us the commandments out of the book of Matthew. I wonder if we should do that here this morning. Well, to understand our passage, we need to understand a little bit about the book of Mark. And I know that Bob just retired with Mark. And you're probably tired of Mark. And I promise you, I didn't read anything he said or listen to anything he said on Mark. So if what I have to say differs from what he said, it's not because I'm trying to correct him but if the correction's good, take it. (laughs) Turn then to Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I I think I was here two or three years ago, and I I did a little bit of this. And it's just, I'm so enamored with the gospels and and a, a fresh look. So think about this for a minute. You come to the end of the Gospel of Mark, and in Mark chapter 14, verse 62, the high priest is just just he's he's fit to be tied with Jesus. You hear all these you hear all these charges and you don't have an answer, and Jesus keeps silent. And finally he, he gets up and he says, Well you you tell us Are you the Christ? The Son of the Blessed One? And if you turn to Matthew's gospel and say, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus says, I am. Okay, so theological categories. Ah, oh, we all know what Christ is. Christ is the, is the Messiah, the anointed one. But, of course, uh, we don't necessarily tend to think, well, what, what anointed How about if we just substituted the word king? Jesus is the king, the son of God. Oh, son of God, yeah, we know what the son of God is. The son of God is that second person of the triune God who has all the attributes of deity and he has been, is, and will be forever. But surely when Caiaphas asked the question, he wasn't thinking. There's no way he's asking, are are you the second person of the triune God? He doesn't know anything about a Trinity. There's one God. So when he says son of God, he's not thinking in our uh, 21st century theological categories. Nor was the Gospel of Mark. And so we have to step back and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. we've we've got all our definitions down our systematic theology and what what's happened is too often then it 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 structures the way we think and we can't see things necessarily the way we come so here it is in the beginning of mark chapter one the beginning of the gospel of jesus christ the son of god well everybody knows jesus joshua Yahweh saves. It's His human name. And everybody knows Christ. It's the word Messiah from the Old Testament. It means anointed. And, and if we're, if we're quick on the draw, we know that the anointed one is the one they're looking for, the son of David. Because we think of Psalm 2. All oh, the nations are in a uproar and they're saying, oh, let's tear off their fetters and cast them from us. And God's sitting up in heaven and he just laughs. He holds them in derision. And he says, I've set my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And then the king talks. I'll surely tell of the decree of the Lord. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Well, (laughs) You think about Psalm 2 and you put it in the context of Israel. And surely that was an inauguration psalm when the king came to sit on the throne. So David, as you know, wants to build a house for the Lord. And first, Nathanael says, go do what's all in your heart. Then the Lord speaks to and go talk to him. And the Lord says no to him. But he says, I'm going to build a house for you. And you're going to lie down with your fathers. And then your son's going to rise up. And I'm going to give him a kingdom. That's a forever kingdom. And a throne that's a forever throne. And I will be a father to him. And he will be a son to me. Well, that means when Solomon came to power. Boom. Thou art my son. Today I've begotten. Of course... He's 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 the ruler of Israel now. He rules underneath the king that Israel had rejected God himself, and he's supposed to rule on behalf of God. So like those days, uh, sons did what their fathers did. Father's a blacksmith, you're a blacksmith. Father's a farmer, you're a farmer. Your father's king, you're king. So Solomon came to the throne and became a son of God by adoption. And and that's that's the way Mark starts out. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. And and then gospel. Ah, oh, what's the gospel? Well, right away, again, gospel. We know what the gospel is. Paul tells us in first Corinthians fifteen. And so we substitute it right back into Mark chapter one, or wherever we see it in in the synoptics in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We we just shove Paul's definition right in there. But That's not what they're thinking. No. They're using Old Testament terminology. And the word gospel comes from the book of Isaiah. You find it, for example, in chapter 40, you find it in chapter 52, and you find it in chapter 61. Most famous, Isaiah 52. How beautiful are the feet of those on the mountains who bring good news the bearer of good tidings. And what is the good news? Your God reigns. Oh, that's the gospel. But think of Israel's history. Well, Israel, they moved out of Egypt, out to Mount Sinai, and there they received the law, and the tabernacle was built. And you remember the end of Exodus, and God's glory coming, and indwelling that tabernacle and then being led by a pillar of fire by night and smoke by day, a cloud. And then Solomon builds the Solomonic temple and the glory of the Lord descends upon it so much so that nobody can stand. God's there. And then everything's destroyed. Babylon overthrows Israel. The, the temple is decimated. They're carried off into captivity. But a promise, a promise You'll return. And so they do. And you read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai and Zechariah. And you discover there they are back building the temple. And when the temple arises, Haggai has to talk to them. Oh, you look at this and you think it's nothing, don't you? You, you think it's nothing. Well, because it didn't look near as glorious as the Solomonic temple. But Haggai says, you know, it, it's it's going to be more glory than the former the latter end will be more glorious than the former. But you think of Israel's history, there's no, no record, no, no statement that God returned to his people. No, no Shekinah glory hovering over that temple. No one coming in. And then you come to Malachi. The Lord's going to suddenly come to his temple. Ah, so it doesn't happen until Jesus' day. So there's a book if you're interested in reading. Are you? You should be. It's called The Isianic Exodus in the Gospel of Mark by Ricky E. Watts. And if you don't like the word perspicuity, don't read the book. By the way, Sydney came up and gave me a big hug and said, what is that P word? So, Mark starts right out and he says, this is the beginning of the gospel. What's the gospel? Your God reigns. Jesus, Yahweh saves. Christ, the King, the Son of God, the one who sits down on the throne and God says, you're my Son. And then you skip down to verses 9, and following there in Mark chapter 1, and Jesus goes down and he's baptized in the Jordan River. Why the Jordan? you got to think. Think. When Israel came out, they crossed over the Red Sea. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us they were identified with Moses. They were baptized in the cloud and in the sea. A kind of death and a resurrection, leaving the old life behind and moving into the wilderness, into a new life. But then they come to the Jordan River. And at the Jordan River, they cross again. Now they're leaving the trials of the wilderness behind to do what? With a kingdom, to conquer, to take it. Here it is, the kingdom. Jesus goes down to the Jordan and here's this picture. Ah, here comes Yahweh, crossing the Jordan to reign Your God reigns. And so he John baptizes him and he goes down into the river and he comes out and the Spirit descends upon him like a dove and a voice comes from heaven that says, You're my son. My beloved son. I'll surely tell of the decree of the Lord. The Lord said to me, Thou art my son. Today, I've begotten you. And then you go on down to verses 14 and 15 in chapter 1. And when John is taken into custody, Jesus comes out preaching the kingdom and the time has been fulfilled. He says, so repent and believe. In other words, the king is coming. The kingdom's coming. The time's been fulfilled, it's here, it's, it, it, it's, it's right at hand. Then we think all the way then, as I said, and you can turn there if you'd like to, to chapter 14, and you look at verse 62, and we come to the end of the book, almost the end of the book, and there we are, and Jesus is on trial, and Caiaphas is saying, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? Yeah, I am. But henceforth you shall see the Son of Man at the right hand of power with the clouds of heaven. And they take him, and they kill him, and they hang him on a cross. And the centurion is watching, chapter 15, verse 39, the way he died. And we hear this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And somebody says, Oh, he's calling for e- Elijah. So they go get a, a, a sponge, a, a reed with, with sour wine, and they put it to his lips, and he drinks. John tells us to fulfill all Scripture. I first. And he gets a drink of, of sour wine, and then he gives up the Spirit, and... The curtain of the temple is torn in two. You can't find God there. It's open. He's not there. And the centurion, a Roman, over a hundred soldiers says, truly, this was, well, my New American Standard says, A, I want to change it to the, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. Truly, this was the Son of God. The centurion saying what you're saying when you say Son of God? I don't think so. Now, he's thinking the way the Bible's thinking. You're my son. I've adopted you. You're my king's son. Oh, this was the king. And just like everyone else, now here's a problem. We killed the king. What are we going to do? Turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 13. we 're getting around to these two blind guys so that's that 's the the last hour before one o 'clock so don 't worry uh, chapter thirteen and we want to look at verse twenty six and then they shall see the Son of man coming in Clouds with great power and glory. Of course, you know, this is what we call the Olivet Discourse. And here the Son of Man title is used. And uh, it's also used elsewhere in the Gospel of Mark. And we don't have time to look up all the references. But then I'd like you to turn with me, if you would, to Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. And I just want to get a get a picture of what we're talking about here before we hit these two blind men on the road. I'm having trouble keeping everything afloat up here. <clears throat> so, Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. They tell us I was looking in the night visions... And I saw one like a son of man coming up to the Ancient of Days, and he was prevent, presented before him, and to him was given a kingdom and a glory and a dominion that all nations and peoples and men of every language might serve him, his dominions, an everlasting dominion. Jesus says to Caiaphas. Yeah, I am the son of God, the Christ. You're my son today. I've begotten you. And from now on, you shall see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. And so I want to present this picture as we, as we look at Mark for just a few minutes that the Gospel of Mark is looking at Jesus as God's son, a son of David. And he is going to come and he's going to take his throne. At long last, the Davidic descendant promised to David is come. And he comes and they crucify him. And I want to suggest to you, and you think about it, that when Jesus was crucified... At that moment, he was enthroned. And there he is, hanging on a cross, naked, clothed in the nakedness of Adam and Eve. They knew they were naked, and he's naked, because he's a substitute. And he has a crown of thorns on his head, taking us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, because the curse is... Cursed is the ground because of you, both thorns and thistles it will produce. So here is the king enthroned. And in our little passage, I don't know if we will time to get to it, we have James and John, the sons of Zebedee, coming up to Jesus. Oh, Jesus, we want you to do something for us. What is it you want me to do? Well, we want you to put one of us on your right hand and one of us on your left hand when you come into your glory. Oh, Jesus says, do you know what you're asking? Can you be drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? Oh, yeah, we can do that. Well, you you will drink my cup and you will be baptized. But those positions are for whom they're appointed. So here's Jesus hanging. And over here on his right hand is what? A criminal. And over here on his left hand, what? A criminal. Jesus is enthroned that day with a sign above his head that says, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Written in Hebrew and Latin and Greek so that everybody walks by, they know this is the king. So Mark is about Jesus coming to be king. And Jesus says, in Mark chapter 14, from now on, you're going to see the Son of Man at the right hand of power. Sure looks like Daniel chapter 7. I saw the Son of Man, one like a Son of Man, coming up to the ancient of days with the clouds. You're going to see the Son of Man at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. When did Caiaphas see that? Well, I submit to you, he began to see it at the day of Pentecost. With all the ruckus that took place, Jesus reigned And uh, even the Sanhedrin called the disciples in. What are you up to? He sees it all the way through Acts chapter 5, but he sees it mostly in 70 AD when Jesus does come. Just like in the Old Testament, God comes through his servant Cyrus, God comes through other servants and destroys the nation and in, in 70 AD, Jesus came with his holy angels and they used the Roman army and they destroyed Judaism. They destroyed Judaism. The temple's gone, the altar's gone, the sacrifices are gone. Well, yeah, Judaism exists, but it's, it's limping at best. Hasn't existed since that day. You can't have Judaism without a temple. You can't keep Leviticus without a temple. Yeah, cause it's over. Now, Jesus is the King and the High Priest. Okay, so here we are. Turn back to Mark chapter 8. How's that for an introduction? My watch says it's 10 minutes to 12. I got 15 more minutes, plus a little extra. So, Mark chapter 8, John read for us the story of the blind man. Uh, have you thought about these? I mean, really thought about them. We we, we have our doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. And uh, we like Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scriptures inspired, and we say down to the very word, down to the jawed and tittle, it's all expired, inspired. Did I say expired? Inspired. God breathed, and then and then sometimes we we gloss over things as if well it's just coincidental. It's it's here for you know, especially numbers. We we think ah oh, well that doesn't really mean that much, and we stop thinking. But the gospels are written through the eyes of the Old Testament. And so everything has to be brought back and our hermeneutic must be an Old Testament hermeneutic. That's the way these guys thought. So here comes these people and they bring this blind man to Jesus. Notice they're bringing him. Will you touch him? Of course, that that means something like, you know, put your hands on his eyes and heal him. What does Jesus do? Spit in his eyes. When I was... uh, Oh, I don't know, sixth, seventh grade. I had a friend named David Wong and we lived in Portland near Reed College and my house had this huge lot on it and so we made a little golf course on my, we got cottage cheese containers and we dug a six hole golf course and we'd, we'd play golf and, you know, golfing's a friendly sport except you fight every now and then. And so we, we'd, we'd fight every now and then and I don't, I don't remember the incident, why, why it happened, but one day he was, David Wong was crazy mad at me. And so I thought he was going to wrap his putter around me. So I ran into the house, you know, I don't hear a thing. And so I, I just take our big old wood door, open it just a little bit. And all of a sudden, and he spit at me right in the eye. And I still can't see. It's disgusting. And so you start thinking, oh, spit, what's 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 that? Is, it, is there some meaning to this? Well, surely. You remember when uh, Miriam and Aaron had a problem with uh, Moses? And uh, God met them at the tabernacle door. And when the glory of God left, Miriam had leprosy. And so Moses pleaded on her behalf. And God said, if her father had just spit in her face... She'd be unclean for seven days. And when I got spit in the eyeballs, I felt unclean. And then you remember that little subject of lever of marriage where you want to make sure about what family you're marrying into. So the guy dies and his widow is supposed to take his brother for a husband and the brother doesn't want to. And so what does she do? She goes out and removes his sandal and spits in his face. And of course, there are the three times in our little section here, 822 through 1052, where we're told about Jesus going to be delivered into the hands of men and he's going to be mocked the last section and they're going to spit on him. It's contempt. It's disgrace. It's shame. My friend was telling me, you're worthless. Right? You're a disgrace. Let me spit in your eye. And that's what Jesus did. Why? Well, because we don't like to say it today. But blindness is disgraceful. Isn't it? Any malady is disgraceful, isn't it? Because it's the curse. It's the curse. It's God saying, I've cursed you. I'm done with you. You've defied my holiness. And so Jesus is demonstrating before he heals this guy. You're unclean. You're unclean. That's all of us. Then he spits in his face and he lays his hands on him somewhere. And he says, can you see anything? Ah, I see men for they're walking about like trees. And then he puts his hands on his eyes and they're clean and he sees everything with perspicuity, clearly. And then Jesus says, go straight into your house. Don't even go into the village. That's a strange thing. I mean, after all, the villagers brought him out. We know there's this thing where Jesus doesn't want to be known, but this, this is ridiculous. They already know. So, it it can't be quite the same theme here. And then you come down to chapter 10, verse 46. And Jesus is going out of Jericho. And and we're we're getting close to Jerusalem now. And by the way, our whole section is tied together with these bookends. Two blind men. And seven times in this section, the word road is mentioned. It's not always translated the same, the way. They're on the way, they're on the road. Well, they're on their way to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. But it's also a picture of what discipleship is because discipleship is, is, is a learner, one who follows behind on the road behind the teacher, learns, wants to be like him on the road. So Jesus is going out of Jericho and this blind man is sitting there and he hears that it's Jesus the Nazarene. And so what does he do? What's a blind guy do? He's got his one and only chance. Jesus, son of David... The king, have mercy on me. Well, you know, blind people are a nuisance. So people try to shut him up. And it's true. My wife knows blind people are a nuisance. You know, they spill things where they're not supposed to. They make a mess. They didn't see something. They knock it over. They break it. They bash their head up all the time. She's forever walking around with somebody who's got a scar down the front of his forehead. Bloodied. It's bad. And they shut him up. And he just cries all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. And then Jesus calls him. Ah, cheer up. He's calling for you. What does he do? What's the little incident here that maybe we haven't thought about? His cloak. He throws it aside. He gets up and he comes to Jesus. What do you want me to do? I want to see. I want to see. Go. Your faith has made you whole, or your faith has saved you. Go. The word go here is an interesting word. In the New American Standard, it's translated go your way. That's not there. It's a little extra. It's the combination of two words, of prefix with the main word ago, which means to lead or bring or go, you know, it has all different kinds of translations, with a uh, with a prefix hupo which means under go under how do you translate that? that's difficult, so we just translate it go, go under but you see this man what does he do? well, first of all the fact that he's a man of faith is demonstrated by his saying, son of David, king, king, have mercy on me. You're the son of David. You're my son. Today I've begotten you. H- have mercy on me. And secondly, he throws his cloak aside. Bakers don't have much. And probably that cloak was used to do what? Gather the coins. Hold him in the cloak while he's begging. He's not interested in that now. He's going to see. So Jesus says, Your your faith has made you well. You, You go. Go under. And what's he do? He doesn't go home. He gets on the road. And he follows them. Jesus and the disciples. He's following. Okay, so here it is. And it's twelve by the way, you heard that right? my little clock <laughs> so here are these bookends, and they're 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 meant to tell us something two stages of healing the first time, one stage the second time what why so? well I'll tell you why because the disciples. Don't have perspicuity of faith yet. Their eyes are not opened enough yet. They're like the first blind man and they see men. They see Jesus, somebody who's walking around like a tree. So back in chapter 8 verse 27, you know, they're, they're walking along and Jesus says to them, well, who do people say that I am? Oh, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say another prophet. Who do you say I am? You're the Christ. You're the anointed one. I've put my anointed one on my holy mountain. You're the anointed one. Then Jesus tells the first time, here's what they're going to do with me. They're going to kill me, and three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. (laughs) Peter says, no, that's not going to happen to you. He rebukes him. And Jesus gives the strongest rebuke a human could get. Get behind me, Satan, because you're not interested in what God's interested in. You're interested in what man is interested in. Uh, That's... That's the first statement, which opens up into this passage that we know as discipleship. Then, you come down to chapter 9 and verse 30. And I wish we had more time. We'd go through all of these. And again, they're walking along. And then they come into a house and Jesus says to them, after he told them a second time, here's what's going to happen. Going to go to Jerusalem, the Son of Man, he's going to be killed, and on the third day he's going to rise. Jesus says to him, What were you talking about on the way? Well, they didn't want to tell him. Why? Because they were talking about who's the greatest. Okay, put that back with the first. The first incident where Jesus thought, "Oh no, 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 Jesus, this isn't going to happen to you." Why? Because there are pictures of of the, of this king, this, this 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 glorious ruler who's going to come and overthrow Rome. He's going to be the king, and we're going to be on his right, right and left hand. By the way, we're his we're his his rulers with him. Then comes the third incident in chapter ten, beginning at verse thirty one. He's going to be delivered into the hands of the Gentiles and they're going to mock him and they're going to spit on him and they're going to kill him. And on the third day, after three days, he's going to rise. And again, it's cast right in this framework of them talking about who's the greatest. This time it's James and John. Who's the greatest? Lord, will you put one of us on your left hand and one of us on your right hand? When you come into your kingdom. And so you can see. One, two, three. They're all, they're all matched up here. All three of them put together. They're all very similar. And, uh, Jesus wants them to see the Christ as scripture pictures the Christ. And he tells them, no, (laughs) in this kingdom, uh, the one who's going to be great is going to be servant to all and slave to all. In this kingdom, it's not going to be like the Gentile kingdoms, chapter 10 verses 35 through 45. It's not going to be like the Gentile kingdoms where, uh, the rulers lord it over them and those in authority, uh, they have authority over them. No, not so in my kingdom. Because here's the king marching on the road, 822, all the way into chapter 11 when he gets to Jerusalem. Marching on the road to do what? To become king. But his glory is a different kind of glory. It's the glory of service, isn't it? So there he hangs, naked. With a crown of thorns on his head, and the kingdoms here—I don't have time to prove it to you—and he's king, but not the kind of king they were looking for. He's the kind of king that really serves, services people. He meets their needs, and then on the third day after being buried, he rises. And here's this picture. Now the king ascends up into heaven and he sits down and we hear the word, sit at my right hand. You're my son. So what's the, what's the whole section teaching? I mean, we could go through it, but just, just a few pointers, okay? A few pointers. So. Here's the problem I have, and this is what I'd like you to think about. I was caught up into a certain kind of system I was taught. And then all of a sudden I couldn't see things with perspicuity. Now I hope I'm beginning to see things with a little more perspicuity. So back in chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus says to him, If anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And that's not for greatness, is it? Not in the world's eyes. It's like the king who took up his cross and walked out to Golgotha and he was nailed to it. And so Jesus is saying, okay, you see the Christ one way, but your faith is not in the right Christ yet. You're a bit of an idolatrous person because you don't have the right Christ yet. Now this Christ serves. And so, you gotta follow me. Be like me. And you have to give up your own identity. Deny self. Take up your cross. And your own self-determination. And you read through the book of Acts and that's exactly what they did. And so the whole company of people in the book of Acts are known as what? The people of the way. The people of the road. They follow Jesus. This comes back to the way I started with the youth group. What is a disciple? Well, a disciple's one who walks behind Jesus on the road, does what Jesus does, and keeps his commandments. Do you know them? What does Jesus want? I- I'm constantly amazed. People come and sit in my office, and they're upset about this or that, and they're going to do this or that, and they'll say to me, well, I, I prayed about it, so this is what I'm going to do. I say, oh, interesting. And and uh, the Lord's leading me. And so I'll open the scripture and I'll say, well, what about this verse right here that says, don't do that. I, I don't know, the Lord's leading me. I, and I prayed. But come on, isn't that how we all are? Because really, <laughs> we don't know the commandments of the New Testament that well. And really, somehow we can find a way around them, can't we? Let me just throw one out for you. Submit to your elders. Wow. Novel. It is novel. Because people don't even think about it. Submitting to a husband. Oh, yeah, we preach that loud and clear. And men are good at that one. Getting their wives oh, honey, you have to submit, you know. But what about submitting to elders? The man who can't submit doesn't know anything about authority. So Jesus is saying, okay, you're going to find your identity in me, and I'm going to determine your life. That's the first thing I want you to see. The second thing I want you to see is in chapter 9, verses 30 and following. It's it's just this passage and, and I don't really know if I if I have it all unlocked quite frankly but it sure is interesting to me So Jesus again he tells what's going to happen to him they're arguing about who's the greatest Jesus puts a child in their midst John says, Oh, I saw this guy casting out demons in your name, but he wasn't followers of ours, so I tried to stop him. What's John telling you? Well, you're the king, you're number one, and then we're right down here somewhere, and, and people need to line up under us. And you they're not lined up. So, you know, how all that flows, I don't know. I, I'm not quite sure. And then in verse 42, Jesus gives this warning. Whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble it, it'd be better for him if the millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the depths of the sea that's pretty bad and uh surely the little one means somebody who believes and it probably is a reference back to the child a reference back to the man who's casting out demons but then he turns it on them in verses 43 through 48 and, and you know the passage you can see it right there in front of your eyes Oh, if your if your hand offends you, cut it off. If your foot offends you, cut it off. If your eye offends you, cut it off. It, it's better to enter into life. The last one says in verse 48, it's better to enter into the kingdom, having one eye than having two eyes to be cast into Gehenna. Where the fire's not quenched and the worm doesn't die. It's quite something. It's an everlasting punishment. I don't know how all that fits together, but you can see the themes following through. It's the idea of being a servant to everyone, like Jesus is. And then, here's the verses I'm going to close with. Verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And I I pick up the commentaries and, you know, I don't really pick them up, quite frankly. I listen to them on my eye-touch. I pick up my earphones. And, uh, they don't, they don't have much to say about salt. It's a hard problem. And I started thinking, wait a minute, I'm tracing Mark all the way through. This has to do something with the subject of Mark. It's not just coincidentally, it's, it's, it's something. Abijah was at war with Jeroboam. Coming to war. He goes up and he stands on the mountain. And he, he's just got 400,000 men. And, and over there, they, they got 800,000. And he says, Don't you know that God gave the rule to Israel all, over all rule to David by a covenant of salt? Ah, there's my connection. Well, I don't even know what that really means, a covenant of salt. You know, except in Leviticus chapter 2 verse 13, some of the meal offerings, they had to have salt added to it and then the portions burnt for the Lord. And, and, and I understand the picture there. God likes things that smell good and taste good. And so salt is somehow added here as we being an offering. And so when it says have salt in yourselves, it, it, it's a reference back to this idea. There's a, there's a covenant of salt. Of what? Well, given to David. And what's the covenant of salt? Your son. He's going to sit on the throne forever. His kingdom is a forever king. Have salt in you. Ah, oh, I'm going to serve the king with the covenant of salt. Everything I do, I'm going to say, Jesus King. The Bible doesn't know democracy. The Bible knows monarchy. The king. I'm gonna have salt in myself. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna get on the road and I'm gonna follow Jesus. My identity is gonna be with him. I'm not gonna be worried too much about how important people think I am. That's not important. I'm going to identify with Christ. It's kind of like in the old days when a wife was identified by her husband. Oh, she's the banker's wife. That, that's what we're supposed to be with Christ. Our, our life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ is revealed, then our life will be revealed with Him. We're identified with Christ. Those people there in Antioch, they're, they're Christians. Christians. People of Christ. The Anointed One. They followed the King. I'm going to follow the King. I'm going to have salt in me, and everywhere I go, I'm going to say, "The King, the King." He 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 reigns. He's in charge. I'm going to do what he says. And when it says everyone's going to be salted by fire, well, <laughs> obviously, maybe it's not so obvious. But but fire is is either a picture of hell. And a covenant of salt has something to do with a covenant that's an everlasting covenant. So salted with fire, if it has a reference with hell, then it's it's a forever punishment for everyone's going to be salted with fire. But but not all of us are going to hell, so there must be something else with fire. And I take it the fire has to do with the trials of life. Through many tribulations, we come into the kingdom. And so, we keep getting tested, tried, to see God. Do you have salt? Is Jesus really king? Well, the disciples, they don't see him quite that way yet. He's the anointed one. They're on the road following him, but it's not until after his resurrection that everything dawns upon them by God's grace. But here's the picture we're marching down the road on the way to Jerusalem and Jesus is going to be enthroned as king and he's a king servant and that's me the way I reign now in his kingdom is by being a servant where I consider each person as more important than myself Philippians chapter 2 verse 3. And I don't look out for my own personal interests. But I look out for the interests of others. And I have this attitude. That was in Christ. Okay so the second blind man. He's the example. First blind guy he went home. He didn't get on the road. And his friends brought him. And says nothing about his faith. The second blind guy. Now, oh, come on, what would you do if you hadn't seen all your life and then all of a sudden you could see? You would think you want to be marching down a road after people who are going to die? You don't want to go home and see some people. What do they look like? How ugly is that deafened boy, I'd be asking myself. <laughs> but instead, he's on the road. He's got it all now, but now he gives it all. I'm following the King. So, my challenge is this. We say we're disciples. Disciples of the King. We're learning, we're on the road. And just a simple definition of discipleship is what? Baptized. And baptism's what? We've crossed over from one life to a new life. We crossed the Jordan from the wilderness into the kingdom. We crossed from a life of sin and death into a resurrected life of, uh, of what we call eternal life in the Bible. We, we crossed over. That's one part of discipleship. And the other part is a commandment keeper. And we get all bent out of shape about the law in the Old Testament, what we're supposed to keep, not supposed to keep. How about we just try keeping what's from Matthew chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 22? We'd come across pretty good if we did that. And we're serious about it. Because we'll say, you know, I'm the servant to all. And my identity's in Christ. And He determines my life. Not me. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for who Christ is, how he is the fulfillment of the Davidic promise, how he has sat down, Peter's explanation in Acts chapter 2. David didn't sit down, Jesus did. The Lord said, Sit at my right hand. Tell him, Make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And we thank you that he's sitting there, reigning as the king. And we thank you that he's sent out first the apostles to announce that good news Jesus is king, he's risen from the dead, he's king. And the apostles, through the Spirit established a church, and we're part of that church to announce the same good news. Jesus is king. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you'd make all of us serious disciples of Christ, following him and, and keeping his commandments and looking around us and reminding people who don't know anything about the truth, tell them, Jesus is king. What do you mean, Jesus is king? Let me tell you about how Jesus became king Lord you know how stubborn we are and how self absorbed and how we love ourselves so much and how we want our way and uh, here we're faced with a passage that tells us now we're supposed to be servants of all, slaves of all, we want to go Jesus way and so work against these hard stubborn hearts just as you did with the disciples and make us people with the right kind of faith a faith that sees clearly a faith that sees Jesus as king, the servant king and we his servants to all mankind For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.